there is a power vacuum that exists right now and is a power vacuum that will continue to exist in these coming years. And I think that's where if you are an innovative, entrepreneurial, but I think most importantly, an intentional and authentic creator, there is space for you to break through in this moment that has not existed at any time before in the history of Hollywood or commercialized entertainment. I believe that your personal life and your professional life are inherently linked. And when you do the work on both sides, you can become the most successful version of yourself. This is a place where wisdom meets leadership, where success meets spirituality. Welcome to Do the Work with Denise Love Hewitt. One of the through lines of this podcast is that we all have patterns in our life that we are destined to repeat until we wise up and react differently. It comes up time and time again, and that can be for different people. That can be in your work life, your love life, your family life. There's a lot of different ways for it to show up. And we talked about this a little bit on Vance's episode last season about how he had a specific pattern in the workplace that was challenging for him. And our duty is to listen when it shows up. And our job is to do things differently. If we continue to do the same thing we've always done, the pattern will continue to show up in the same way. I recently had one of my patterns show up again in my dating life, and I couldn't believe it because I've done a lot of work in this regard, and I thought I was past it. I thought I'd done enough work that it wouldn't show up. And the reality is there's always more work to be done, but the tools I have are way better. And so when it did show up, I was able to navigate the situation in a way that was entirely different than how I had navigated it in the past. And I think once I recognized that, I realized that was the point doesn't mean it's not going to show up. It's that we have the ability to show up differently. And so it's also great because it shows us a mirror as to where we are in our work. And so for me to have the ability to react differently, it showed me that I was where I thought I was in my work and where I have farther to go. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the journey. Life is not happening to us. It is happening for us. And we can co-conspire with the universe to make the life that we want. You choose how you react. Today, I am here with Andrew Coles. Talking with Andrew is like going to church. When we go in, I leave with a lot of, woo, damn, just like a lot of heat, a lot of truth tellings. I'm always very lit up and inspired. We both always like take notes while we talk. He's a very special human who's been a massive expander in my life. He left corporate Hollywood to build the Mission Entertainment, a management company focused on creating more space for more voices, and that has evolved into the Mission Radio and lots more. Andrew is at his core a creative. He's deeply introspective, and he's always evolving, and every time we talk, there's always amazing new ahas to share. So I can't wait for you all to hear from his brilliant brain. So Andrew, thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me, Denise. It's uh, lovely to see you as always. I appreciate the kind words and introduction. It's always an honor where you hear someone who has observed things about you that you don't necessarily clock yourself. So I appreciate your kind reflection. Uh, I take it to heart, uh, and I'm really, I'm really excited to be here with you. Yeah. So I've wanted Andrew. I think Andrew should be just out here speaking all the time because I think he's just such a great thinker and speaker. That so one of the things I wanted to do was bring him here as sort of hopefully a birth of that journey for him because I think we need more Andrew in our ears. So I'd love you to tell everyone sort of your backstory of like before you went to Hollywood, how you found your way to Hollywood. I think that was always very interesting to me and. I'd love everyone to hear it. Yeah, for sure. I did not know that Hollywood was a place that actual people worked. I didn't understand how you got into it. I didn't understand that it was a job or a career or a path that I could follow. So I I think that's really, that's the best and easiest place to start is this was not a long childhood dream. This was not something where I saw a lot of examples uh, of people who looked like me, who were operating in Hollywood, who had built careers in Hollywood. I didn't have an understanding. And I think with what I've learned since I've been working in the entertainment industry, um, that's one of actually the the things that's most important to me is I think bringing visibility of like, this is a job that's very doable. Like there are certain barriers to entry, which I am sort of actively trying to combat, you know, in my day to day, but it is, it is, it is possible for, it is possible for anyone to work in this industry. Like this work is difficult, but it is not hard. If that, if that makes sense, it requires, 
you know, I think in awareness, I think taste, passion, point of view, persistence, a lot of those things which are necessary in any in any career or any path. But I my original childhood dream um, was to be a civil rights criminal defense attorney. And there's a moment where it's like, well, this feels very different than what you're doing now. But there are actually a lot of similarities that I found over the years. So I wanted to be a civil rights criminal defense attorney. I read To Kill a Mockingbird in seventh grade English class uh, and realized that the American criminal justice system was built in some very specific ways and that black Americans, Latin Americans, basically anyone who was not born into certain positions of privilege and access, that the criminal justice system was not built for us. It was not meant to advantage us. It was not meant to be lenient for us. And so I think when I learned that early on, I really was excited about inserting myself in a system that had some systemic inequality built into it and working to change that. Again, there's the first parallel with the entertainment industry is I think one of the one of the biggest issues facing the entertainment industry right now, and you'll see a lot of think pieces about it, is this question of, well, who's in these rooms? Who's in positions of power? Who are the gatekeepers? How have those gatekeepers changed, if at all, over the last decade? And what is necessary for us to build a more equitable industry? Um, so again, it, it's for for me, I think I entered into the industry not knowing. And and how it really how it really happened was there was a mentor of mine who after my dreams of going to law school disappeared, I realized it would be a lot of reading old Supreme Court precedents and studying a lot of case law. uh, And it was not the most exciting thing for me. Uh, The paperwork, the paperwork was my, I was like, there's no way, because I thought about it too, but I was like, the paperwork alone, not my path. And then I think to to do all of that studying and all of that work and to be confined within a very regulated system, you know, uh, of uh, a regular, a very regulated legal system, where it's like, we have to talk about precedents, we have to talk about case law, when we make these arguments, they have to be based upon what's come before. And maybe we'll be able to maybe we'll be able to change things. But I think the I was daunted by the prospect of entering into such a, a weighty and calcified system. And so a mentor of mine at that point asked, he said, well, have you ever thought about working in entertainment? And I was like, no, I not didn't, I, how, what does that mean? What jobs are there? Like, I know there's actors, I know there's directors, I know there's people that run studios. Uh, and he said, okay, well, I have a former student who's a writer. Let me connect you to him. Let's see if we can get you an internship. And I think that was really my first lesson in how Hollywood works is it is about access and opportunity. Like I had a mentor who had a former student who was a working screenwriter in Hollywood. He connected me to that former student of his, that former student of his connected me to his manager and said, Hey, I know this kid do you guys have an internship for him? That's how I got my first internship. It was through favors, it was through connections. And that was really how my Hollywood career kicked off is that I went to school on the East Coast. So I had not spent much time in LA. I didn't know much about it at all. I didn't know anything about the industry other than the fact that I loved watching movies and TV shows. And so I came out to LA the summer after my sophomore year and started interning at this small management company, which was called Madhouse Entertainment. And they had me in a small windowless office, you know, reading scripts and writing coverage. And it was my intro to the industry. And I realized, oh, a writer has an idea. They put it down on paper. They send it to some people. Some people read it. And if those people like it, then that idea continues on, you know, through the pipeline of ultimately hopefully getting it made. The thing that I realized within the first couple of weeks of that internship was there are not a lot of black people who are participating in this process. There are not a lot of people of color who are participating in this process. It is actually a very homogenous group of people who are participating both in the creative process of having an idea and putting it on paper and then sending it to another similarly homogenous group or largely homogenous group who are reading and processing and determining which stories have value and worth and which stories should be told. And again, Hollywood is a commercialized art industry. It is about making money. Yes, art gets made. Yes, there are folks who work in this industry who want to bring about change. But the mechanisms and of this industry are built upon making money. And so I think when you enter into a system like that, where you've got homogenous groups who are creating, when you've got homogenous groups who are decision makers and gatekeepers, and the bottom line imperative is about making money, it is a very difficult environment for new voices to break in. I want to say one thing, which is also like the 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 crux. I mean, we'll get into this a little bit more soon, but the whole the the what it was called the paradox of it all 
is that you make more money when you're inclusive. And so this like fear around not being inclusive and not having the right infrastructure, because you talk about the infrastructure of Hollywood and it's based on when, when we like, you know, early days of Hollywood, you just went to the movie theater, right? So it was a megaphone. You could at one size fits all, you have to see what's available. And when Netflix came in and disrupted distribution and you had more choice, right? The infrastructure of the business didn't change and the infrastructure is inherently outdated. And so there's all these issues and friction within the Hollywood ecosystem and sphere that Andrew and I've talked a lot about, but it's really hard when you're saying, actually, if you look at the sort of trends and the data and what's happening, that everything, inclusion points towards money. And then there's still this homogenous monolith that doesn't want to change how they've done things because it butts up against their discomfort and their, and their safety. Okay. Continue. Well, I, I think to, I think to that point, it goes, it's a strange thing that our industry is slow is so slow to respond even though it has been proven that inclusion and true representation is better for business so then we have to look and say what is getting in the way of an industry that is about making money from making more money is power. it power and and i think it's exactly what you keyed in on it's for those gatekeepers who have coasted through doing their work for the last several decades who now sit in positions of prominence to accede that there are things that they do not know, to see that there are stories that they do not have the cultural sensitivity or awareness to tell, is to acknowledge that they are not the end-all be-all. And I think that's really what we've been seeing in the last decade plus of our industry, is a lot of people are running scared right now. Because again, if, if you are no longer representative of the culture, if you are someone of an older generation, perhaps, who is not as tapped in and recognizes that there are people coming up after you who have their finger on the pulse, who have more connectivity, who come from a variety of lived experiences and backgrounds, who can speak to things that you cannot speak to, your value decreases if we're playing a zero-sum game. Which, right, I was going to say, which they think their value decreases, but the reality is you can, you get higher uh, ROI when you surround yourself with people that can speak to the culture, you become more valuable because you don't have to be on the pulse, but the people below you do. And like, you can help them assure and like, this is the whole crazy thing about it is that it's actually pretty simple if we, if we have un- dismantled our ego and our relationship to white supremacy and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But I want to bring up, so Andrew and I were recently on, recently a few months ago, a clubhouse talking about the state of Hollywood. <laughs> and this convo was wild <laughs> because you had a wide array of people from different viewpoints in Hollywood. Obviously, Andrew and I have built our own things in this space. So we think a little bit differently than some of the people that come from like the corporate culture of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. But you had people there that are, you know, like very much during the pandemic, no one went to the movie theater. Okay. Like we know that. We know that box office has changed. We've known that for a long time. We know that that has been a dying business, you know, for the past 20 years. But we have we have we all accepted it in the industry? No. So we're on this thing. And we're, we know also, by the way, like Sony right now currently has no streaming strategy. They like opened up my friend's movie box office only like a few months ago. And I was like, wait, what? That feels mm. insane to me knowing the state of what's happening in culture and society. I'm like, that that dude just set up that movie to fail. And so, the, but this is what I'm talking about. So in this conversation is about three people that are like, box office is coming back. It's all about the box office. Everyone like, there's another guy on the chat who's like, my son has no desire to go to the movie theater. Like that is, and because like for their own personal nostalgia, they love a movie theater and that's how you should see a film and blah, blah, blah. And I enjoy a film experience too, a movie experience. Mm -hmm. But the reality is the culture is not necessarily in sync with that. Mm -hmm. And so what you're just going to like decide that that's the way it's done because you and a group of people in a Hollywood boardroom think that's a thing. And then Andrew comes out and he drops the mic and Andrew goes, I am not in the saving business and Hollywood is a saving business. And I like, I mean, talk about going to church. I'm here being like, yes, this is how I feel because how many years have you and I been yelling into on deaf ears Mm -hmm. about things that need to happen. Mm -hmm. And the internal market of Hollywood just isn't ready. Like they're still not ready to admit 
deep, like the deep truth. The deep truth is that the movie theaters, you're never going to go back to the booming age of the movie theater. So you got to let that go. And we got to figure out better data and better ways to pivot to recoup more money. And like, we can cling on to a dying business. We can sit like, okay, I always say, I'm like, it's like the Titanic. And it's like, I'm handing you, I'm handing you the raft. I'm handing, I'm like, there's an iceberg. They're like, there's not an iceberg. There's not an iceberg. I'm like, get on the raft. They're like, we don't want the raft. There's no iceberg. And then you're like, okay, well then I can't help you. If you want to like go head first in the iceberg, you run and pretend you don't see it. Blessings. It's really, and I think it's a lot of the, to that point, it's a lot of the labor, intellectual, emotional, spiritual, that, that we're asked to carry is to come up with solutions for an industry. And we'll just talk about the entertainment industry right now, because I actually don't have the energy to talk about the world at large. But <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's, you know, it's this burden of just like, well, tell us how to fix this. And then, then I tell you and you don't want to do it. Right. And, and it's, it's in that it's the, and, and again, we've, we've talked about this for many years, is this idea of if this industry does not display a willingness to shift, why would we continue to try to help them save themselves? Because I think to your point about theaters is absolutely correct. And it's a scary thing to face, right? Because this is a very destabilizing thing. Like theaters have existed as they have for the last century in our country. Like we have built up a lot of faith in them. They mean a lot of things. But if pre-pandemic, the average American was going to four to five movies in a theater per year, that's not a growth strategy. Like we, we cannot, we cannot survive as an industry just trying to recapture those four to five movies a year. Like that's not going to do it. And it's not, it's not in the best interest of commerce and it's not in the best interest of arts. And so I think again, like you and I are speaking in an audio format right now, when we think about the explosion in audio storytelling in this moment, when we think about what listenership looks like, when we think about the number of average Americans that are listening to at least one podcast monthly, like there's something, there's something very interesting in how storytelling is shifting and how these mediums are shifting. And I think this idea of just trying to patch up the holes on a sinking ship versus saying like, well, what happens if we just get enough of us out on rafts and we start figuring out how do we lash our rafts together? And then how do we start building a new type of craft? Because where the world is going is not where it's been. We cannot just look to what has happened as a path to try to feel secure about where the future is going. So, you know, I'm, I, I think I've reached this point, you know, again, of not, of not saving anymore, you know, for a number of reasons. But I think in that it's like I became a manager. I started the Mission Entertainment because I really wanted to be a part of widening out the pipeline and creating more access and opportunities for storytellers who have been historically underrepresented and undervalued. And what I have seen, you know, in the last dozen years of doing that work is a lot of change. Because again, when I started the Mission Entertainment, there was no Black Panther. There was no Get Out. There was no Macro. Uh, Issa Rae was just building her empire. You know, it's like, and so in that, it's like there has been such immense change in these last years. But it is not enough. It is not fast enough. And ultimately, my concern is that as we get into conglomerate consolidation. And again, we talk about the murders, we talk about the companies together. When we think about each of these media empires trying to build their own distribution strategy, trying to build their own streaming platform, trying to build their own way of reaching consumers, you look at something like the recent Space Jam movie, which has come out, which I have not watched yet, but from the trailers and from all of this, you look at some of the corporate synergy that's operating in that marquee project. You think about how it's used to place and to seed audience awareness and consumer awareness for other properties and other IP that is owned by Warner Media. That is their right. That is what they that's their business strategy. That's how they make the money make sense. But it's just very interesting to me. And I've been toying around with this theory is like, I believe that Hollywood in, in large part has seeded a lot of the, the cultural leadership that it has exhibited over the last century. If we think about a movie uh, like Zola, Zola is a movie that was inspired by a series of tweets. So what that it's means, I really enjoyed so that good. movie. I really oh, enjoyed I had so that much, movie. I went to the movie theater for that and I mm-hmm. had the best i mean what a fun movie it's and again had you like i have not seen a movie like that i have not seen a movie that moves that way i have not seen a movie of that rhythm i have not seen a movie with the subtextual conversations that are happening in these awkward car rides like there's something that that creative team pulled that is different than a lot of what hollywood has created 
But when we think about it, it's like, what are the big original concepts that Hollywood has come up with in past years? A Quiet Place, A Quiet Place 2, maybe the Purge franchise, maybe the horror space. Like it's, 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 an, it's an interesting proposition where if Hollywood is no longer a cultural leader, if, and again, I sit in these meetings and I have clients who get these submissions in. So when I tell you this is a thing, believe me, it's a thing. When you have executives and producers and representatives who are like, well, here's a podcast you can adapt. Here's a book. Here's a graphic novel. Here's a story. Like when we think about how much of the creative output of Hollywood has shifted towards IP mining, whether reboots, remakes, sequels, like there's a really interesting opportunity for storytellers who are telling original stories across all mediums to have more cultural leadership than traditional Hollywood. Or t- but this is this is the main issue, right? This is so much of what scripted was about was that we saw this coming. We saw a very IP based marketplace that was actually hindering the screenwriter because the reality is screenwriters are IP creators, mm-hmm. but because Hollywood has held the screenplay hostage from the public for a long time to have quote unquote more control, what it did was actually undermine that creative. And so they have to write a book or create a podcast to then actually like get their screenwriting career where they want it to be or adapt someone else's material, even though they've written original work that just never gets to see the light of day. And so scripted, you know, the whole point of it was like, how can we get the public to engage with these works in a fun way? Because the screenplay itself, it look, I mean, it's outdated as a format. It's boring to read. It's not accessible to the public. And this goes back to the core infrastructure, which is that, we don't have to create an IP-based market. We don't have to have the presumption of built-in audience base if we actually have better infrastructure and better data. The problem is we have bypassed. It's like it's like a really, really, really great bypass of like, we're just going to like, now that we're in a distribution market and we need all this, you know, t- so much content, it's like the it's like the short-term strategy always, the lazy path versus saying like, okay, let's actually go back to the, like the rooting of this industry and say, we built the infrastructure for that megaphone environment, for that one size fits all environment. How can we reassess our core infrastructure to future-proof the business to make sure that we can still be cultural leaders, not be reactive, not be like, you know, franchise fatigue. Mm-hmm. And that is really my issue with so much of, you know, we can take it out larger to just the culture of the U.S. and, you know, the world and this short-term thinking strategy instead of taking a step back to future-proof. And future-proof takes more time, but it's also called future-proofing for a reason. And I think this has been like the major tension point for me because the thing that always drives me crazy is that like best-selling books, if you're not like an anomaly, sell between 10 to 50,000 copies on any given week. And we are like Hollywood loves to option a best-selling book. And you're like, that actually has very little relevance culturally than if you were to like, you know, give that book out in a different way or give that screenplay out in a different way. And because Hollywood is also elitist, right? We do this thing where we don't value like virality on social media. We don't value technology. And so therefore, when you have different things that like go viral, if it's on a platform that we deem less than, right? Like because Hollywood loves to like look at short form or any of these things as less than, then the problem is that doesn't translate. And so you have all these things actually with huge audience bases that because we've decided it's not like, you know avant-garde or on vogue, we're not going to give that data the time of day, even though that data can be life-changing if we were to, you know, actually implement it correctly in the core business of Hollywood. And I think that that's, that goes to the piece of just like, well, what does the future of the core business of Hollywood look like? And I think that's, you know, I remember a point, it was probably about 10 years ago, maybe a little longer, but I remember there was a point where when we talk about Q scores, so celebrity ratings, there was a point in which the Q scores of YouTube stars and influencers eclipsed that of what I think we can now say is the last generation of bona fide global superstars in the way that we grew up with them and knew them. When it gets to a point where there are YouTube stars who have more cultural influence and in the metrics that are measured, they have more influence than someone like Will Smith. What position does that then place Will Smith in? And if you look at, if you look at Will Smith's career over the last decade, and again, full disclosure, I used to work for their production company, so I have some insider knowledge in this. But I think it's really interesting. It's like, think about Will Smith's social media engagement over the last 18 to 24 months. 
think about him bungee jumping into the Grand Canyon, thinking about his weight loss journey and his posting his dad bod, thinking about all of that and all the ways in which he has changed his metric and said, rather than having maybe one or on a good year, two movies that come out that have my face in front of audiences and they'll see me in the junkets. How do I connect with people directly? How do I give them more of myself? How do I give them some of the authenticity? How do I give them some of the vulnerability, some of the playfulness? And I think that's one of the things, like if we think about who Will Smith was in the Hollywood ecosystem in the mid to late 90s through, let's say the mid to mid 2000s, sort of up until, you know, if I Am Legend came out and, you know, 2007 2008 like in that like he represented a world star and again his career had been built very much in that way like every movie that they would release they would go to a different territory do different junkets get close to local media they would do all of that strategy i'm very intrigued to see what it looks like in five years again we're having the conversation about tiktok stars and how many views they're getting and how big their followings are if we think about all of all of these ways of uh, how do we measure cultural currency? I think what's exciting is if you are a creator, there's never been a better time to create. I think the real problem is for legacy institutions that have a lot of overhead, that have a lot of infrastructure, that have a lot of employees, that have a lot of, you know, they're trying to recapture the value of past years because they have shareholders to be responsible to. So they'll do you know, CBS will do five, you know, Star Trek projects that they've launched, you know, in the last couple of years. So Paramount will do another Transformers project. So I'm, I'm excited in this. I'm excited in this moment because, again, the infrastructure is not built to change. And, you know, I think in, in a lot of ways, there's not there's not an evolutionary mindset that I have seen exist with the urgency that I think it needs to exist with what this moment that our industry is in. So it just feels like a rife moment of opportunity. I, I was sort of liken it to like we're living in a mafia environment and like we've just gotten word that the Don of the legacy family is sick and is ailing. And none of the Don's kids seem positioned to take this over. Like there is a power vacuum that exists right now and is a power vacuum that will continue to exist in these coming years. And I think that's where if you are an innovative, entrepreneurial, but I think most importantly, an intentional and authentic creator, there is space for you to break through in this moment that has not existed at any time before in the history of Hollywood or commercialized entertainment. That's my belief. I love that. Um, you know, listen, we need someone to take it on. I send them a lot of tools for that journey. Let me just tell you that. Yeah. And that's what I well, actually want the next thing I want to talk about with you is that I find you and I sort of had a similar vision. You were slightly, you know, ahead of me with what you were doing and, you know, different approaches, but a similar sort of mission or ethos. And I don't think, and I'm not going to speak for you, but for me, I was deeply naive in understanding what I was taking on. Like, I was just like, here's logic, here's logic. And like, here's how we're going to move from logic to actual change. <laughs> and then obviously the nuance of <laughs> systemic injustice uh, is not logical. And so I have found for me in a lot of ways, building scripted was my personal growth journey, my darker into the soul journey, my sort of becoming journey. And that work that meant coming to a system that did not want to change, that wasn't ready to change and offering them tools and solutions, it required a lot of introspection, a lot of strength, a lot of analysis, a lot of like reading to understand how could, like I read a book that like about like how the FBI turns people because mm. I was like, oh, maybe this will help me in these negotiations and meetings. Like if I just like hang around, you know, like just try the FBI turning strategy that maybe like I'll start to get some like, you know, momentum behind this, this new idea. And I think that it's really hard to accomplish systemic shift. And I think for me, a lot of the stuff we saw was that we, we were definitely adding towards more, you know, 90% of the content sold off our platform is, was, is written by women and people of color. Mm -hmm. So obviously that sets a that's did it overall change the core numbers of the business? No, right? And that was always my goal was like change the numbers because I'm a very like macro scale type thinker. And so we were making change, but not the change I wanted. And I guess what I want to know from you is like in your process of building this, like 
what, how did you navigate this? What are the tools that you use? Because it is really, really hard to do this. And it was something that I really underestimated to my, to my best interest. I, I mean, it's made me all a much better person. Had I known actually, I think the journey, I don't know if I would have taken it. So I would love to know sort of what you've implemented and sort of what has been helpful to you as you continue to sort of like navigate this space. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent question. Um, well, I think a, the FBI turning technique is hilarious. Um, you are you, so that's consistent. Um, I love it. I love it. I was like, whatever tools. I was like, just send me the tools, whatever I need, whatever book helps. <laughs> I agree with you. Um, if I had known then what I know now, I don't know. I don't know that I would have done it in the same way. I don't know that I would have approached it with as much vim and vigor uh, and sort of excitement, you know, and I think in a lot of ways, like to do a thing that is not only unique and individual and sort of rooted in deep core beliefs, but is also directly counter to the mainstream. Like it is an exercise of swimming upstream to create possibilities for those who have been intentionally left out. And I think that in some ways is the trick of the thing where I went into it believing it's like, oh, people just don't know. People just don't know. And if we were to educate them more and if they were to see, they, they would understand why tapping into a uh, relatively underutilized talent base who is bringing cultural traditions and points of view and stories and family legacies that have not been seen and have not been, to talk the talk of our industry, have not yet been monetized, I'd be like, well, surely, surely everyone will, once they understand, jump on this. And so I think, you know, approaching it at first from a place of education, be like, let me come to your office. Let me talk to you about why these things are important. Let me, you know, introduce you to some folks. Realizing that was all well and fine, but at the end of the day, you know, as we talked about earlier, it's like there's a different decision-making matrix. There's a different decision matrix that's going into a lot of these decisions. And so it's not just about lack of awareness, but it's about certain cultural presumptions that make the industry more stable seeming. And that's really hard to combat. And it's really disheartening because you get to a point where you realize it's like, oh, logic doesn't matter. I think making the emotional case for why this is the right thing to do doesn't matter to a lot of people. And there is a shift in that where you start to think in the ways of the town, which is taking a bit of a mercenary approach where it's like, okay, if the change and intention and sort of the more revolutionary aspects of what this work can do are not appealing to you. Can I talk money to you? And I think it's a dangerous place to be because yes, that is a practical way to achieve change and to push things forward in this industry. But I think it can also flatten out one's personal mission and intentions. Um, and you can start operating with the mindset of lowest common denominator of is this marketable? Is this sellable? Well, if not, how do we make it so? How do we start making good business decisions? And I put that in air quotes because good business decisions often don't feel good. They don't feel integrous to the creative intention of a project and to how you want to push things out. Uh, and so I've had to build in a lot of tools because I hit, I hit, a, I hit a, a plateau point where I started uh, assimilating, I think, in some ways to the ways in which the town makes decisions, I started making some good business decisions that didn't feel right and weren't authentic and weren't aligned with what I set out to do. But it felt like the only path forward. Um, and what that realistically did was bring me to a place of deep dissatisfaction, where I was really unhappy with this thing that I had created and this work that I was doing. I did not feel fulfilled by it. I did not feel satisfied by it. And it really required me a couple of years ago to go back to the basics, going back to the original notes when I started the mission entertainment to be like, why do I want to do this? Who do I want to help? Like, what's my position in this? And it really created and, and inspired a reorienting of my business and a question of saying, I cannot pour all of my intention, all of my heart, all of my soul in trying to revise and trying to save and trying to resuscitate an industry that actually doesn't want to change. I have to create different means. Uh, and you mentioned it at the top of our conversation, but that's really where the mission radio came from, 
which, you know, began as really like a personal art project because I was so burned out and I was depressed. And I was like, I just need to create for fun. I need to create for no agenda other than to have an outlet for my emotions, to go back to the basics of why I love creating and to try to create some things that I'm proud of with people who I respect and admire and like creating with for no other agenda than to create. What that has kicked open for me in the last four years, and I think where it has grown over the last several years, has really been what now stands as a proposal and a proposition, and I think a research and development initiative that is getting at the heart of exploring what the future of our industry will look like, what the future of a studio will look like. And I think asking those questions in a time of increasing cultural resonance but also where the means of content creation and distribution have been democratized in a way that, you know, this is the printing press, you know, uh, taken to the nth degree. Like what, what, what Gutenberg and what the printing press, what the Gutenberg Bible meant in terms of societal shift and how we communicate, how we exchange ideas. Like that's what our phones, that's what YouTube and Vimeo and SoundCloud and TikTok and all of these new means of content distribution represent. This is why they are stacked up against and are in a lot of ways uh, in opposition to the traditional theatrical experience. And I think that's what's scary most to those traditional stakeholders. That is why Hollywood raised and invested $1.7 billion into Quibi, which said, we're going to make premium A-list talent short form content that people can only consume on their mobile devices. Because we see how popular short form content is. And we know that people want to consume content in short form because this is what our data tells us. This is an idea. This is an enterprise. Again, $1.7 billion. And that was never user tested. Don't even get me started. Like we couldn't we, even we, raise a million dollars. <laughs> and you're like, we have users, a community, a vision. And they're like, you know, because of who they are in the business, people are like, great. It's, you know, that we're going to give them the money because they've done it before. And the reality is, I mean, what I knew from that, from watching that whole thing play out was two things. One, like they got caught up in the old Hollywood thinking that celebrity mm -hmm. matters mm -hmm. and that we're, we're in a story driven market, not a celebrity driven market, just newsflash for everyone. Stars do not make us go to the box office in the way they did in the 80s and 90s. And the next piece was really like when you release it a week later, you were like, we're going to reformat it for TV because people want to watch on their TV. It's like, well, then did you user test this at all? Or was this just like an ego thing that we're like, people want to watch short term like form content on their phone. So we're only doing it mobile friendly. And I think those are the things where I'm like, you know, this is where Hollywood has set itself up for a mass disadvantage because they were so resistant to technology for so long. The, mm -hmm. the power players are not educated mm -hmm. in best practices of technology and like how you work with tech technology into your long-term vision. And so, you know, like, you, you know, this cause like studios, I mean, whatever, like, what was it? Four or five years ago, I was meeting with more than one studio who still had paper scripts in a warehouse that they hadn't digitized. Okay. Mm -hmm. what, let's just say you have somehow that building gets set on fire. You've eliminated millions of dollars of IP that you don't know, not to mention that the things that like they do have internally for like to keep track of their scripts. Mm -hmm. It's like they don't even know what they own. Like it's mm -hmm. not even well done technology because they don't understand technology. So when people pitch them ways to digitize their library, they're not user friendly. They're like, oh, this person says they can do this. And this is the big, the big frustration because this is the opportunity. The opportunity is to get fluent in both languages. Yeah. And it's, I think to the, I, I think to the point, and, and it's, again, this goes back to where we, where we, what we touched upon earlier in the conversation, there's a generational shift. Like we all get older, like we all lose touch with what the youth are doing. Like it's just the natural, the natural progression of life. But I think Quibi is an exact example of that generational divide and that lack of technological fluency or comfortability that a lot of those who are in gatekeeping positions um, are afflicted by. Quibi came about because the leads of that company who are veterans, you know, of the entertainment and technological spaces saw their kids watching short form content and being on their phones all the time. Like that's where that came from. I don't know if those conversations were like, hey, child of mine who's glued to your phone, why do you love this short form content? Who are some of your favorite creators and why do they speak to you? Is it the fact that you're seeing someone who reminds you of you in their own bedroom, which makes you feel aspirational about the things that you could create? And like, 
I think a lot of that wasn't in the conversation. But again, you have a, and we can call her a certified media mogul uh, in Reese Witherspoon, who just sold her company for a whole bunch of money. She was paid millions of dollars to narrate a uh, nature documentary for Quibi. To your point about old Hollywood thinking, what does it mean to someone who is watching content on their phone, someone who is presumably of a younger generation, to have this very established and very valuable actress in the TV and film and producerial space voice a nature documentary? Like, where is the organic thought process in that? And I think, yeah, and what's the data to back that up, that that makes sense for the demographic, that she's the right voice for that? And this is the data that we are missing mm-hmm. because Hollywood has never valued data. It's all been ego and instinct. And I'm such a believer in merging both. I think to be the best creative you can be, you have to understand what you're up against. And without data, we don't actually understand how to succeed. We don't need to make these decisions blind. No. It doesn't need to be. So in the process of going through your evolution, uh, figuring out, okay, a different way to build, how to expand your business, when things got dark, because mm-hmm. I know they always get dark when you're an entrepreneur, there's, you, there's no avoiding it. Yeah. Um, what, what were your biggest tools? Like what helped you to dig in? Slowing down. Slowing down was the, was the first part. And I think to, to slow down and to take stock and to check back in with myself and to really allow myself to feel how out of alignment um, I was. Um, like the work that I was doing on the day to day wasn't making me happy. I wasn't proud of the things that I was creating. I wasn't proud of how I was serving the clients that I was working with. And so a lot of it just came from slowing down and being like, am I okay? And the resounding response was like, no, like, no, I'm not. Like there's a lot happening in the world. There's a lot happening politically. Like there's a lot happening internally. And I'm trying to do this thing that I feel at times very ill-equipped for, and I feel like I have no idea what I'm doing, and I have no idea why anyone would ever trust me to go out and launch this thing that was so idealistic and was so high-minded and all of that. So that slowing down and stopping was the first part. I think then really looking at what were my daily practices to take care of myself and to make sure that I was operating in the ways that I, I needed to. It was establishing a yoga practice. It was establishing a meditation practice. It was establishing a journaling practice. It was spending time out of LA and taking myself on some creative retreats and getting outside of the bubble of expectation and assumption, you know, and I think the ways in which when you were in a very When you are in a bubble of an environment, you start to take on some of the attributes of the environment and at the risk of losing parts of yourself. So I think that really was, those were some of the keys when it got very difficult. And then I think the other part of that was, and again, this is where the Mission Radio came from, going back to the basics. I'm like, I did not come into Hollywood to make a lot of money for the sake of making money. I did not come to Hollywood to go to a lot of parties, to rub shoulders with people, to post pictures of them on my Instagram to be like, I was there, look at me. Like, that's not what I'm here for. I have no judgment for anyone who is here for it. Like, we all have our different motivations. We're all on our journeys. Like, I come from a very particular life background and experience. Like, things have happened in my life that have made me who I am. And I judge no one for who they are, where they are. And I have no shame about who I am and where I am. But I think in that it just got back to like, I'm here to make things. And the reason that I'm making things is because I believe that at its core, art can do something to us that very few things can do. I think art can operate on a a level of spiritual resonance. I think art can operate on a level of emotional resonance. And I think that art can help us better learn about ourselves and better see ourselves. And by virtue, help us better understand the world around us and the people around us. Like that's why I'm here and that's what I'm here to do. And so when I looked up and I was like, I'm not spending a lot of my day doing that work. I'm spending a lot of my day in the politics and in the back and forth. I need more of my day to be about getting back to using creativity as a tool for connection, using creativity as a tool to build community. That I think was really, I think getting back to first practices and best principles was the reset that I needed. And I think invigorated me where the more traditional sides of my work, dealing with studios, dealing with execs, dealing with agencies, dealing with the infrastructure of entertainment, it became more manageable because I was able to protect certain core parts of myself and said like, yeah, I have to show up and I have to do these things. I have to be on these calls. I have to handle these things on behalf of my projects and my clients' projects. But also I have this creative harbor over here. 
I have this this pure expression. I have this authentic space in which I can talk about matters of the soul. I can talk about matters of the spirit. I can talk about things, my emotions, and I can connect those to an artistic practice and be in an artistic and creative community with people who I value and who value some of the same things that I want to explore and want to talk about. And I think we all have to figure out that duality where if you are a mission-driven person, like if you are someone who is an entrepreneur, you it it is very easy to become your thing and to be like, this is my life's work. This is me. This is the sum total. My identity. Mm-hmm. And the reality is like what, what we do is probably not the last thing we're going to do. So that being your identity. And there's people even, by, by the way, like I've seen a lot of people recently that are in corporate America that this big job at this tech company is their identity. And when they lose that job, they've lost themselves mm-hmm. and they're going through a lot of reawakening and figuring out who they are separate from work. And I will say like what you've said actually really resonates with me because so much of what made my entrepreneurial journey, not that it's ended, it's just like that, you know, building scripted, sustainable was because I was also a professional DJ and I had this other outlet in my life that was catharsis for me. Like it was, it was flow, it was catharsis mm-hmm. and it was very supported. Like it was more successful, mm-hmm. right? It was like, I was, I was validated for that in a number of ways. And my friend told me, she's like, you know, you were so smart to have something else that you're really good at because then when things were hard with your company, it wasn't your whole world. It wasn't your whole world crashing down. And I think that's really true. This element of play or having hobbies or having things that nurture your spirit, which is the most important part. Mm-hmm allow you then to have like better energy to put into the mission. Because for me, what I've realized over time is that whether it's my podcast or scripted or anything I do, really my mission here is to create more space for people to tell their stories. And this is like, this is another variation of scripted, the podcast, right? Like I do the same thing. It's just a place for people to share their stories that that for me is really important for people to see the heart and soul of people's essence, whether there's a thousand different ways for me to express that. And I think that's really what we have to remember is we get really caught up in like one expression of a purpose and purpose can have a multitude of expressions. Purpose can have a multitude of expressions. I love that. Mark, mark that down. That is a, that is a, that's a gem. And I, it's, it's in some ways, it's like the expression of your purpose is just an expression. Like if we're getting to a place where we're, we're, we're clear about what our purpose is and what we're trying to achieve, how we want to make people feel, what we want to do, then everything that we do can be an expression of that purpose. I, I think you put it really well in, in framing even your personal pursuits. But I, I feel very similarly as like as I got back to the basics, like as I started getting back to myself. And again, as we've talked about, like DJing played a part in my journey as well, where it was just like, Again, there's an entire different conversation about what the act of mixing does to one's creative mind and possibilities and how I think it's an incredibly powerful tool for inspiring creativity. But I, but I think in that it was, I, I realized that what I was doing when I was DJing and just inviting people over to my house and having gatherings and having parties and having these things that felt so separate. And there were parts of me that felt so guilty. I was like, but you could be reading more. Like you could be doing more for your clients. You could be building the business out. Like how dare you spend time being creative and spending time with people? I'm like, no, that's part of the work. Like, and I lost that. I lost that in the, in the narrowing and the tunnel vision in some ways, which is like, well, you just got to keep going. You got to grind. Like you're an entrepreneur. So there's no one else but you like running this thing. Like no one's going to care as much as you do. Like you have to constantly be tending this thing and pushing it forward. And realizing that as I let go some, and as I opened up these other aspects of my life, everything fed the mission, everything fed my purpose, gathering creatives in a space and allowing them to come together, to convene, to dance together, to be with each other. Like that is the feeling that I hope to inspire in people with the movies and TV shows that I create. And so in realizing that it's like, oh, I'm able to tap that feeling. I'm able to hit that purpose. I'm able to express myself in a variety of ways. And it is not taking away from the enterprise. It is not diluting from what the mission entertainment is or how successful we can be. It's actually expanding it and it's future proofing it in some ways. Because I think to get to the point where we are now, where I, you know, for the last six months, I've been running creative retreats out here on Kauai. That is a direct result of stopping of slowing down, of tapping into who I am and how I feel and what I want to be doing, starting with myself, taking myself on some creative retreats and realizing like, oh, 
Some other people might like this. Some other people might benefit from this. There's a lot that can come from this. What happens if we start building community in these ways? What happens if we start coming together and creating together in these ways? And it feels so different than a lot of the day-to-day -day creation that we are allowed to do within the traditional industry. So I, I, I think to that point, it's when we go back to ourselves and when we go back to, it's like, why am I doing this in the first place? You realize you're not a one-trick pony. You realize there's a lot of different instruments you can play. There's a lot of different positions you can play. There's a lot of different ways to get to the core goal of, I want to make people feel this way. I want to provide people with this resource. I want to provide people with this access or this opportunity. There's countless ways to achieve what we are built to do and who we are built to be. And I think that in a lot of ways has been one of the greatest lessons for me in the last you know, four or five years of just accepting, accepting that and uh, not feeling like the company that I'm building is the end all be all of me, but it is an important part of me. There is a lot of me that is in it. You can look at the company and be like, oh, I have some ideas about who Andrew Coles is, but there are other parts of me that deserve to be nurtured and deserve to be shared with the world that are equally as important, if not more important than the business that I am creating. I think that's so powerful. I also, you know, my friend said something to me a couple months ago that also really was an epiphany for me was she has basically, she used to be a showrunner and left sort of Hollywood now to sort of help people tap into their inherent creativity mm. because for her she felt as a showrunner she was like hollywood the way that they've created or forced creativity is inherent for her felt inherently like patriarchal and masculine mm -hmm. and she was like well when we're birthing things that's inherently feminine so how do i create a different space to be intuitive when i took a step back i was like oh my god that's obvious now that you've said it but so much of how we create we've tried to quantify it in this you know the culture that we live in and actually we need different ways to create because that's a, once again, we've created a one size fits all methodology. The mm -hmm. idea that you need to go, you don't can't rest. You just have to go, go, go. Like that's actually not how we create mm -hmm. and that take that rest and that play is a big part of creation. And so I think that's really important to think about, you know, as we're building, which is building that in from day one. And obviously we all have to learn over time and dismantle a lot of this, the, the beliefs in ourselves to do that. But I think it's a really important point because it was something that I, I feel I felt too. Like I think every entrepreneur has a lot of stress and guilt when it's all on you that you feel like you can't do any of those things. I didn't go on vacation for like three years mm -hmm. and like that affects you. That affects how you show up. It affects not only how you show up, but it also, it affects the well that you're drawing from. Like if we have to be creative, if we have to be inspired, if we have to be pulling disparate elements together to form a cohesive whole, we have to have a variety of inputs. And so I think it's, it's a, such a dangerous trap because everything culturally around productivity, around worthiness, around all of that, like I think steers us on a path to, you just got to grind it out. You just got to give it your all. You got to leave everything on the field. Like that's the only way to do it. And again, I think that that perspective applies a lot in the commercial art industry where it's like, again, that is a mindset that serves a very particular set of goals. Like that is a mindset that serves a capitalist infrastructure when there is not rest, when there is not rejuvenation, when there's not time down, when there's not time down, you know, it's like that is, that is not in the best interest of the art. That is not in the best interest of the artist. It is not in the best interest of the innovation, nor is it in the best interest of the innovator. And so I think that's the, that's the piece that we have to, we have to, I think, allow ourselves the space is like when you take that vacation, when you watch that thing for pleasure, when you read that book for fun, when you peruse the news or pick up that magazine that you don't feel like you should be reading because how is it related to your day job? That's where you're going to get the idea that's going to allow you to be revolutionary. That's how you're going to get the idea of like, oh, I was really reading something really interesting about Y Combinator. And that could be a really interesting model for us to look at development and how we bring artists together and how we put energy behind ideas that are good, but need mentorship and peer support uh, and some structure around them. So it, it's again, I think, you know, as someone who's fallen into the trap, you know, mirroring for you, it's like we have to stay open. We have to stay nimble. We have to stay we have to stay receptive and we can't get bogged down and just so stuck in whatever the immediate task that we are doing or trying to build or trying to achieve because it feels very urgent, but we're actually setting ourselves off from our sources of inspiration and innovation. To your, to your point and to what your friend said about like the creative process and how we think about that, I, I was thinking about this idea and, and allow me this tangent, but um, I'm a man of faith. 
I believe in God. I have, I grew up in a religious context and I've been looking at a lot of the religious contexts that I grew up in and was conditioned in. I have a really big issue with uh, the, the presumption of God's gender uh, identity in uh, the Christian Bible. Um, it's, 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 and I say it in this point where it's, if we think about, again, to your point, it's like, what is it to create life? Like among our species, like who can actually create and carry life and bring it into the world? Like, yes, it requires two to tango. There are composite parts in there. But I think we have to think about reassessing our approach to creativity and artistry um, through the lens of the feminine. Because there is an energy that is sorely lacking and missing in our creative process. And it is one where there is a lot of value that is being left on the table. And again, if the point of art is to conquest and to make money and to become powerful and become famous, there's a certain way that you're going to create those projects. If part of the intention of art is to connect and to bring people together and to nurture them and to give them a soft space into which to feel their feelings, that needs to be a part of the creative process. And so we have to find and bring more balance into how we create if the things that we create are going to have the intended impact. Having worked at some place where there are a lot of uh, unsustainable artistic practices, it affects the quality of what's created and it affects the product. And like in the same way, like we pay a premium for organic food. We pay a premium for free range chicken. We pay a premium for things that are raised sustainably and harvested sustainably. We need to start bringing those same practices to the commercial art industry at large, but also just our artistic practice. Like how you feel when you make a thing is going to be felt by someone who receives it. And I think don't get yourself so caught up in the process and in, well, it'll all be worth it at the end because they'll see the final product and it doesn't matter if I've treated people horribly in this or if I've gone astray from my original creative intention or whatever it is, like that will be felt. And people may not know what it is, but again, why are there TikTok stars that have millions of viewers? because they're doing something that taps into a core emotional response. And that is so much of what is missing from the commercialized art industry and particularly from Hollywood right now is with all of the algorithms, with all of the rebooting, with all of the IP mining, I think there is, there is lost a focus and an emphasis on how are the things that we are making, how do they make people feel? What are people taking from this process? And so again, it just feels an exciting time to continue to ask these questions and to reevaluate and to revise the ways in which we approach our creative practices, our entrepreneurial practices, and our practices of innovation, because our world is in desperate need of new solutions, like now more than ever. More than ever. This, obviously, Andrew and I could talk for another eight <laughs> hours, but we have to get to our rapid fire questions uh, because we just, I I mean this, like I have so many, like I'm still, I'm like buzzing, which is like, I knew this would happen when I talked to you. <laughs> um, so I hope you guys are too. I know this was a little bit more of an insider Hollywood conversation, but I hope it shed some light on some of the challenges um, and why as a viewer, you might be really frustrated with what you're watching. So we're going to jump into the rapid fire just intuition, let it guide you. Don't think about it. Just answer. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Do not be ashamed. Shame is not helping you in any way. It is weighing you down. It is turning you against yourself. It is causing you to doubt yourself. And you are actively hurting yourself every time that you are ashamed and every time that you let shame operate as a principle and affect your decision-making. I love Kill that. shame. That is good. That's a great one. What is the last book you read? Okay, fun fact. I read probably close to 30 or 35 books at a time. So <laughs> really. Give me one. <laughs> Give me one that stands out. Um, I would say Your True Home by Thich Nhat Hanh. Thich Nhat Hanh is a Vietnamese Buddhist monk. Uh, he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize by Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968. He has been one of the most influential thinkers and teachers that I've encountered in the last few years. And Your True Home is a collection of basically daily devotions. So there's 365 of them. And so each day I just read a little different passage, you know, and it's a teaching about mindfulness, about how do we, you know, get past anxiety? How do we sort of solve conflict in our interpersonal relationships? But I've read other, I've read other books of his, but it's one where I've sort of just been reading a daily devotional and I'm sort of on my second go through. So Your True Home by Thich Nhat Hanh, 
high recommend a nice daily dose of of mindfulness and he's just such a beautiful he's such a beautiful teacher that there are just you, i i have found that nearly every day when i when i read his writing there is a concept or there is an idea that really sticks with me and resonates and is always timely so that would be that would be my recommendation great what are you struggling with right now i'm struggling with right now how to talk about all the things that i want to do in a way that is digestible to other people I've been incubating the Mission Radio for, you know, four years now. I have uh, a closet full of notebooks of ideas and iterations, programs and initiatives. And I'm struggling right now with talking to other people about it. I know there is a component of fear of vulnerability in this, in that even more so than the Mission Entertainment, I think the Mission Radio is uh, a bit closer to my heart because can I run a business? Yes. Uh, is that my heart's desire? No. Am I much more of a nonprofit community organization leader? Yes. Is that what the Mission Radio is? Yes. How does it fully operate? I don't know yet. I think I'm in some ways I am. I feel nervous about talking about it because it is it is you know a part of my heart. It is not me, but it is a part of me. But it's also it's a very big idea. And so thinking about where to begin, um, talking about what support I need, again, patrons, investors, supporters, thinking about what that is. This, this month of August um, and this, ne- this period of this next couple of weeks is really just me sitting in the silence and wrangling some of these things down. And I think getting at least a version 1.1 that I can be like, hey, here's what I've been working on over the last four years. Like, here's some of the shape of it. I don't have a lot of it figured out. And in some ways, I think that is the... That's the inflection point where it's, I am simultaneously very calmed by the fact that I don't know what it is and being able to say like, I don't fully know what this is. It's a thing in process. And it's also very terrifying as a recovering perfectionist and someone who's like, well, you got to have it all figured out. You got to know what the things are. I will tell you as a startup founder, I don't think anyone even knows what they're building until about a year and a half into their business. And if they tell you they do, they're lying to you because your business as you iterate is going to tell you what it yes. is. You are going to learn quickly. So yes. like my big thing, like I know a lot of people who think they have to be experts before they like do the thing. And anyone who says they're an expert, they're not, mm. they're not. Like when you, you're starting something that the business and the the market dictates to you what you're building, mm. your job is just to be able to navigate and iterate in real time. Thank you for that. That yeah. is. Well, that's what I think. I think this is a lot of type a perfectionist this oh, yeah. is a lot of our problem we think we have to know do everything know everything and it's it's you just got to build the plane as you fly it and just be smart and just know that you're you're a licensed aircraft driver yep yep thank you for that i needed i needed that and i think it's it's again it's a it's a it's a key point to remember it's like if i knew how to do the thing and if i knew what it was fully it would already exist and someone else would be doing it like if I was like, it's that thing over there, I'm just doing my version of it. That's inherently less exciting. So appreciating the opportunity to step out on faith. Uh, and I, I, I take your learned and received wisdom to heart. And I appreciate it very much. You're very welcome. What's bringing you joy right now? Being surrounded by nature. I moved to Kauai uh, at the end of September last year. Um, was definitely pandemic related because I was like, I spent six months quarantining with my family, which was lovely. Uh, but then I needed to go spend some time by myself. And I looked at where LA was uh, and I was like, hmm, I don't think so. And so it's been life changing. I have lived in cities since I graduated from college. Like I was in LA, I was in New York. I came to LA for work. I was like, you got to be in LA to do entertainment. And I think to be here on Kauai for the last 10 months, Conducting my business, making deals, pushing projects forward, like produced a season of television from here, have been running creative retreats. But the nature is 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 the most joyous aspect of it for me. When I am stressed out, when I get overwhelmed, I walk across the street and I look at the ocean and it calms my nervous system down. When I am driving and feeling like I'm somewhere in a hurry, I look over and there's either the ocean or some mountains, or some wide open, grassy and verdant fields, um, and it brings me it brings me comfort. So I am uh, I'm very I'm very I am overjoyed to be surrounded by nature. Immense joy. I love that. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Figure out what your line is and draw it. When I graduated from college and I was about to start working. 
there's a piece of advice that my father gave me. And he's just like, look, you have to figure out what your line is now. And you need to figure it out before you're in the field. Like you need to figure it out before you're in the midst, because when you're in the midst of a tough decision to make, it's too late. But you have to figure out what the line that you're going to draw that you won't cross. And I think it's it's an ethical line. It's a moral line. It's a question of who do I want to be in whatever space that I'm operating in. And he's like, hold fast to that line, because if you erase that line in the sand and you redraw it, that will not be the last time that you erase it and redraw it. And I think it's been it's it's been something I've thought about a lot. And it's really been a it's been a North star in, in, in how I try to operate and how, how I, how I move forward in all of my, in all of my dealings where I want to feel good at the end of the day. Like I want to feel good about how I treated people. I want to feel good about the fact that I conducted myself with honesty, with integrity, with authenticity, with openness. Like I'm not always going to have good news for people, but I want to deliver that news in a way where they at least say, Hey, that sucks but I appreciate you for being straight with me. I appreciate you for delivering that with love and compassion and awareness. And so, yeah, just figure out, figure out what your line is and draw that line and just, and hold the line because the entertainment industry will ask a lot of you, but any industry, any circumstance in which there is money or power or things, worldly rewards to reap, there will be people who are trying to get you to abandon the position that you hold and it is never worth it. And I have seen some people that made the decision early in their careers to never draw a line. Uh, I saw people who have consistently redrawn the line in their careers um, and they are not happier for it. Sure, they are more successful, I think, in the ways of the world. We say material wealth is not success on this podcast. It's all about the integration of personal and professional uh output. So, I mean, yes, we can talk about those people. I know them too, yep. who have abandoned all their morals and ethics to get to a certain financial sitting in their mm -hmm. life. But I know knowing them, none of those people are happy. No. And so we talk about the whole, like, but my whole thing is like, we need to redefine leadership to be holistic because money does not equate to happiness. And we have a bad emphasis on that in this culture. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm going to sum up some of the wisdom we've heard today. Oh, yeah. um, a few things for people to take with them. As Andrew said, there is never a better time to be a creator. And we're in a really exciting time in Hollywood where, you know, his mafia reference that there's a power void, that there's a lot of space to break through. I think that's really important for people to think about that are interested in this industry. I loved this one. Good business decisions don't always feel good. I think that is such a an important thing to think about if we want to live a life of being in alignment and integrity. The other thing you said was don't be afraid to slow down and go back to the basics. For Andrew, that's been yoga, meditation, nature, and journaling. But I think that's a really good thing. Is get, Let's get back to why we started the thing is always a great thing to think about. Art can do things to us that very few things can do. And I agree with that. Art can help us better see ourselves and the world around us and reflect it back to us. And then kill shame. That one is awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Kill your shame um, and figure out where your line is and draw it. I mean, I cannot thank you enough for giving us, like there's more that I could talk about of the wisdom that you shared today, but this was a lot and very special. And I'm so grateful that you were able to take the time today. Well, Dee, thank you. Thank you for the invite. Um, you know, I, I, I deeply respect and admire you in getting to know you over these last, uh, over these last several years. You are, you are someone who is, who has helped me expand what I, what I understand to be possible and that I can, I can truly be myself in doing this work. So I, I appreciate you for being a presence in my life. Like, thank you for holding this space. Uh, thank you for inviting me. This, uh, as expected, was a true joy and a pleasure. And I'm just so, I'm so grateful to, you know, you and to your team and to your community and to your audience for, you know, spending this time and allowing me to talk about some of the things that excite me uh, and make me, make me happy. And we're all going to be stay tuned for the mission radio. Amen. Amen. And you, you already, you already know, I mean, we've talked about it in prototype, but you will, you will be up and through there. So anyone, anyone who enjoyed this, uh, look out, look out for Denise. She's going to, she's going to come do some, do some fun stuff on TMR. I can't wait. Thank you all for listening. You can listen and subscribe to Do The Work on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, anywhere you can listen to podcasts, you can find ours. It makes a huge difference if you could review, share, and rate this podcast. I want to give a big thank you to Entertainment Speakers Bureau and Angela, Wine Designs Media, 
Lenny Skolnick for the musical intro, Lindsay Johnson on the graphics, Olivia Christian on social. I'm so, so grateful. I hope you find or continue living in your purpose.